0: How many of you have an awesome Father's Day gift like the one that I'm sporting here this morning? Anyone? Any dads rocking a cool tie today? In uh, full disclosure, this one is actually a Christmas tie, uh, gift from Elias, it is uh, gingerbread men and, uh, and Christmas lights, so um, pretty spectacular little thing. Um, Something about watching that video, I don't know for you if you're watching it like there's something fun about the idea of dad being the superhero, but kind of when you get down to the meat of what's being being said and shared in that video, it actually kind of choked me up a little bit. Anyone else in here? Yeah? To some extent knowing. And and if you know me, I don't actually cry that much. I remember uh, for my dad, I remember when I realized or the first time I remember my dad crying Uh, I I realized this year, I turned 38 this year, um, was the year that my dad was 38 when his father passed away. And I remember it pretty distinctly because when my grandfather passed away, I remember my dad kind of pulling me aside. We grew up on a farm and he pulled me aside soon after that on the farm and just told me that he loved me. And all of a sudden he's got tears running down his face and it seemed like after his father passed away... My dad would cry at the drop of a hat no matter what. And it got a little awkward at times. Uh, he would, you know, if there was a kid, uh, one of us kids were on the stage you know, singing a performance of some sort. Dad is weeping in the front row. And, um, but there was a, something special about that. And there was a different type of superhero that I kind of came into contact with after that moment. Something uh, tender had happened in my dad's heart. And so uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, to him as well. He's about the only person who listens to my podcast. So uh, I expect to be able to say happy Father's Day to you, uh, to him uh, on that. So not all the time, you don't always feel like a superhero dad. Those of you who are dads, you don't always feel like you are the one doing things correctly. In fact, you definitely uh, feel like a failure at times. Uh, How many of you like to ride the bicycle path in Clarence? Anyone ever ridden up and down the bike path in Clarence? Yeah. There's a few opportunities as you're coming down the bike path where there's intersections, where you have to stop and actually cross an intersection and if you haven't been thinking about it in a while because you've been cruising along on this bike path, you forget that there are cars that do cross this intersection and you're supposed to stop. And so uh, in my great wisdom, I had made a, a bike trailer thing uh, that, that basically I was pulling our youngest at the time, Maya, in the bike trailer, and then behind that I had fixed two bicycles on the back of that so that my two younger kids, Dalia and Hazel, could pedal along behind the bike trailer, so this whole bike train was about, you know, 40 feet long and we're cruising down through there. So I come up to the cross, the crossroad, the cross section there, and forgetting that I'm pulling a train behind me, I kind of slowed down and then last minute I decided there's a car coming but I'm sure that I can make it across. Well the fact was I, if if this was the line here, I was able to make it across but I still had the 40-foot train behind me out in the middle of the intersection. And so in order to uh, navigate my way through traffic I swerved a little bit to hurry up and get across and ended up dumping all of my kids into the road. Fortunately, all of my kids are still here, but the car did stop. The guy, he had tears running down his face because he thought he just about ran over a bunch of kids. And, and uh, it, it, I did not feel like the superhero dad in that moment, I'll tell you that. That was a couple years ago. Uh, this week, um, I also did not feel like a superhero dad. I, I pulled up to the school. I want to see if I can demonstrate this properly Here. I pulled up to the school the other morning, and there was cars in line in front of me. And so as the driver of the vehicle, I am safely navigating my way through the car rider line. Uh, The school is on this side. I'm facing this way. And Hazel says, all right, Dad, I'll see you later. And I say, Hazel, wait. And she stepped out of the car, and I was beginning to move forward. And so as I look here, Hazel's about this far away. Hands reach away. She says, hey stop, I had pulled away and her foot had dragged under the car, and as I stopped, Hazel should be telling this story, as I stopped, the tire rolled up onto her, onto her foot, and then as I stopped and I had pushed the clutch back in, the car rolled back off of her foot. And eyeball to eyeball, I'm standing there and she's looking at me saying, I almost died here today. And it's your fault. (laughs) I'm sure that you have better stories that you could stand in front of people and tell about how you were an awful dad, dads, to take a little pressure off of me. Uh, That would be helpful and so there's going to be an open mic over here. (laughs) I'm going to take off this tie because you won't be able to take me seriously the rest of the message if I keep it on. See many of you are dads. Many of you have lived through these types of situations. Many of you understand that responsibility. Many of you are moms. So you understand that being a parent and this parenting journey is a difficult one. You never feel like you got it right. You're never doing things correctly. You're having a difficult time with it. Some of you are granddads and some of you are grandmoms, and you are walking through the journey of. One of your kids walking through the journey of being a parent and you are watching them fail miserably as we all do from time to time. Some of you aren't parents at all, and that's okay. Because what we all have in common here as we walk through life is that we all feel like at times, maybe you are feeling this way this morning, if you've had a week like mine where you almost ran your kid over in front of the school. Maybe you're going through a week like that and you're going through and you're saying, this life is hard and it's difficult to walk the Christian life in front of everyone that I'm around and I'm just not doing a great job at it. If you get out your bulletins this morning and pull out that white sheet of paper, there's an outline in there to let you know where I'm going with the sermon today. I just want you to know that you too who are walking through life, life feels a little bit too difficult. As you're going through this and, and kind of living this out, I want you to hear this this morning. And it's a quote by Zig Ziglar that might be helpful to you. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. So keep moving forward. The best is yet to come. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. Some of you are walking through this week, this morning, a very difficult road. Just keep walking forward. Sometimes the beautiful destination is still to come. How many of you know who Zig Ziglar is? A few of you. He's passed away. He's no longer with us. He's, I think he was 88 when he passed away. But I learned this week and just doing a little bit of background that he lost his father at a very young age. On Father's Day, to talk about it this morning, it would be... He lost his father at a very young age so he starts out in a very difficult situation and yet he became a very strong motivational speaker. Many of you have read some of the things he's written, maybe you've even heard him speak yourself, that type of thing. But you know, at the end of the day, the reason why Zig Zitter can look at this, his life that he lived here on the earth and say that it would lead to a beautiful destination is that today he is in glory, he is a Christ follower, he is a Christian, and he is in glory with his father on Father's Day. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And not only that, he is with his heavenly father who is not the failure at parenting that you and I are. You see, we walk through difficult roads, but they will lead to beautiful destinations. I'm certainly an imperfect father. We however have a absolutely perfect heavenly father. Today we'll see how he will deal and how he deals with his imperfect children, that's you and me, and his disobedient children, that's you and that's me. Specifically for the children of Israel, the way that he deals with them and how he interacts with them and then how the rest of us interact with the holy God. We're in this sermon series, we're uh, calling this sermon series uh, that we have this hope. Uh, we're covering chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. If you've read through those chapters with us, or if you looked at those chapters at all, this sermon series title doesn't make any sense. Because the word hope never appears from chapter 9 through chapter 11. The word hope is not in these passages at all. But on the front end of it, the book end at the front end of it, that end of chapter 8, we do see the word hope loud and clear. And when we get to chapter 12, verse 12, we see hope again coming through. And so to look through this kind of dark section, chapters 9 through 11, confusing section at times, and look at it without hope is actually a misunderstanding of what's going on in the larger context. And so we need to kind of remind ourselves as we go through these sermons, as we go through these passages, that hope is right there in front of us. We have this hope. If you remember the, the whole a story that's being played out here in In Paul's gospel of Romans, uh, in chapter 1, verse 16, we got the thesis statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That was over in chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me tell you about the gospel. In chapters 1 through 8, he communicates the gospel again and again and again. In chapter 8, he says, I am absolutely convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God and then we get in this middle section chapters 9 through 11 where Paul specifically and uniquely addresses the Jews the people of Israel who the heavenly father says these are my people the children of Israel and then we'll get we'll move on to their next we'll be moving chapter 12 through the rest of the book where hope again comes to light but right here in this section we're seeing this section where Paul is addressing the Jews So as he looks uh, in chapters 9, we talk about how God, how he worked and chose Israel. They were his chosen people, but he rejected them. And how it hurt Paul to be able to communicate to them again and again, like, you are God's people and yet you continue to turn your back on him. You're refusing him. You're rejecting him. And it hurts me to write these words to you. You had every opportunity in front of you and still you decided to turn your back on him. Chapter 10, we dealt with last week of their response, the people of Israel's response. And we we see this beautiful word, this beautiful verse. says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You see, in chapter 9, it talked about how God had chosen these people. But here in chapter 10, it's saying, it's now your opportunity to choose Him. Make the choice and you shall be saved. And He includes us, the Gentiles, in this conversation. Today, though, in chapter 11, we're going to talk about the future of Israel and how he will restore. What will this heavenly father do with his children? What will he do to restore them back so he can restore his people back? So if you haven't gotten there yet, would you please turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. 11. It's on page 1187 in the Black Pew Bibles if you're using those in front of you. We're going to be in the New International version this morning, so if you're using the U version or another way uh, of a digital version that you want to use this morning, find your way to Romans chapter 11. You see when we look at Scripture, I want to remind us of this as we get into here today, to remind us that when we look at Scripture we have to look at context. We always look at context. You see, this this passage, this chapter was not written to you and me in 2019 at 6301 Main Street, Williamsville, New York. We are not the addressee of this letter. This was written to first century Rome, the church there in Rome, the people there, the Jews there in Rome in the first century. So first we have to understand what did this passage mean to them? Why was this letter written to them? And then we can understand what that means for us Today, So if you follow along in your notes this morning, here's the first thing I want you to fill in for you this morning. Israel is not totally rejected. That's your first fill-in. Israel is not or was not totally rejected. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means, the Apostle Paul says. Did God reject his people? By no means. He's asking this question, or he's he's putting it, why does he need to clarify this? Well, if you remember from last week's sermon of the passage of chapter 10, if you look there just a few verses previous, when you finish chapter 10, verse 21, it says, concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. If he's calling them disobedient and he's calling them obstinate, you would assume that he has given up on them, that they are no longer his people. We have to be very careful of that as we look at it. It's something called replacement theology, where we look at all the promises that God has given for the people of Israel, and we say, well, He's given up on them, He's thrown them away, and now all of those promises are true for us today. And that is not what's being communicated here. And the reason why we have to be careful of that is we don't don't want God to say, God saying, I gave up on Israel, now I've got the church, I'm going to focus on the church. Because what happens with this type of replacement theology is is dangerous or has been dangerous in history. We've seen it come out and show itself in anti-Semitism. We've seen it come out and show itself for years and years. And we've seen it even rearing its ugly head again with white supremacy. This idea that no longer is God choosing to take care of the people of Israel, but God is choosing to take care of his church instead. And that is not what's being communicated here. So verse 1 says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. And he goes on, we'll see in the next few verses, he talks about himself. By no means, I'm an Israelite myself. He said, I'm the writer Paul, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in this passage about Elijah and how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. See, the Apostle Paul is writing here, look at verse 2. It says, God did not reject his people who he foreknew or he had foreknowledge of or he was thinking about ahead of time. But you look at that word foreknew or the the word knew, K-N-E-W, And we we see in the biblical sense, in the King James biblical sense, we talk about this of of Adam knew his wife, Eve. Or God knows or knew his people, Israel. There's something much deeper there. He, He knew her. So the reason why Mother's Day exists is because Father's Day exists. The reason why Mother's Day exists is because Father's Day exists, right? And so because of that, he is saying here, really at the end of the day, he knew his people. He loved his people. He pre-loved or he fore-loved them and cared for them. They were his children. They were his people. And he knew about it beforehand. He did not reject his people. He's known about them for a long time. Then he goes on and tells this story or gives this example of Elijah. And remember, he's writing to a first century Jewish audience who knows very clearly who Elijah is. Let's be reminded ourselves of who Elijah is. We learn about Elijah and we look here at the context. Elijah is dealing with the wicked king and queen, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel is not a name that many of us in the room have. Uh, Even in modern day, Jezebel is a pretty mean, nasty person. And we don't see that name appear very often in our culture because it still has that connotation. She was a cruel, vindictive person. And Ahab just allowed her to kind of have her free reign in the kingdom. And so specifically, uh, there was this idol worship going on. The idol worship of Baal is going on in the kingdom. And Elijah, his prophet, is fighting back against it. This is not going to happen in God's house. This is not going to happen with God's people, the children of Israel, the children of God. And so they come, he, he calls out, he says, you bring the prophets of Baal and I will come and meet you at Mount Carmel and we will see today who God is. And if you know what happens, God demonstrates himself and shows himself and literally allows fire to come down from heaven to demonstrate his power, his authority. And of course, the idol worshipers of Baal were not able to do this because their God was not real, he was fabricated. So he demonstrates himself and shows his power power, and in that day they respond by by going and fighting back against Baal, and 300 of Baal's prophets were executed that day. And then a few chapters later, even a few verses later, we find Elijah hiding in a cave because guess who's after him? Jezebel is after him, and she's pretty mad about the fact that they've executed 300 of the Baal prophets, and he's hiding in a cave. And he's saying, God, why have you put me out here all by myself? I'm not strong enough to fight back. I'm not big enough. Even though he had just seen God move in a mighty way, he's whimpering and hiding in a cave. How many of you feel like you've been that guy whimpering and hiding in a cave, afraid of what the world has around you, afraid that as they are coming in on you, that you don't have any way to fight back? You don't have any way to respond to the daggers of the world. That's the spot that Elijah is in. The Apostle Paul takes us to that moment because he wants to remind us of the fact that God was there. Not only was God there, he says, I have left a remnant for you. Remember, as he quotes here, he shows us, he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who would not have bowed a knee to Baal. First of all, who do you think you are, Elijah, that you're the only one? And there are 7,000 that have been set aside. This remnant, the principle of the remnant, there are still some, not all, but there are some who are going to continue to be committed to being a child of Israel, a child of God. I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So then too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. This too in this present time, first century Judaism, talking to them he's saying, This too in the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace who I will call my children. This is a theological basis of something called election. The process of election and saying that God foreknew before he created the world, before he spun things into motion, he, he knew who was going to follow him. He, was, he knew who he was going to select to be able to become children of God. Now remember first that we're reading this from the first century Jews' eyes. So they had given given every opportunity to be God's chosen people of Israel, to follow through with the sacrifices, follow through by by the leading of the prophets, follow through by the leading of Moses and of Abraham and all the other patriarchs. So there is a remnant that I will hold for myself. I have chosen them in that. An act of God before creation where he chose who would receive salvation. Now we read that in our Western uh, civilization mindset and we look at that and we say, that just doesn't seem right. I don't like that. You're saying that God chose, we don't have a choice in this? Where where am I represented? Where's my vote? How do I get my say in this? You're telling me that God chooses who will have salvation and who won't. And we get kind of, we fight back with that, we don't like that. But again and again in Scripture, we see this principle brought forward. But before you get too excited about that, we also see a different principle. Because the reality is his election is this act of God where, where at creation he knows who would serve him. It is not, however, that he knows ahead of time, that he's thinking ahead of time that Milo Wilson on a certain date is going to give his life to him. And so therefore because he knows that he treats Milo Wilson differently because of that. That's not what we're describing here. Because if you, if you put things in that context, that's actually the easiest way we try to explain what is actually a very complicated mystery. But when you explain it that way, then you say, well, because God knows that I'm going to choose Him, then He loves me differently in the present time because He knows in the future that I will choose Him. And so actually, I am actually moving the will of God. And nothing could be further from the truth. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote about this, and he gives the illustration of the courtroom. He says, if we actually imply that God is waiting on or, or hoping to uh, get my, my vote, uh, is, is waiting for me to select him, it's an inversion of what the actual God-ordained order of things is. You see, in the courtroom there is the judge, and the judge sits in his seat, and the rest of us sit in the, the rest of the room. And we continue to try to put ourselves in the judge's seat to make the choices in the room. And at the end of the day, what election does, this process or principle of election is it keeps God in his proper place over man. That he does not cater to you and to me. He does not allow us to call the shots for him or tell him what he is going to do or what he is not going to do or who the remnant is going to be and who they are not going to be. You see, we actually don't have a problem with this principle when we say, God selected me to be saved. We don't actually have a problem in that. It's when we roll it out a little bit further, and then we look at it in the negative and say, well then that means that God must not choose Him, because I've decided who God chooses or who He doesn't, and it starts to invert that principle. So if we look at this and we live in this and we we struggle through some of these verses, look at verse 6, and by grace then it cannot be based on works because that's what would be happening right there. When We look across things in that way, we start basing things on works and be able to say, well, if I elevate myself so then God will choose me, then things begin to be based on works, not grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they could not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, to this very day. Even David says, may their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. May they not be able to see what's right in front of them, is what he is saying. Because there's only going to be a remnant or a small number of people that were going to be chosen by God. You see, election keeps things in their proper place. It's a very confusing thing. And if any of you, if I stood in the back this morning and I said, let me explain to you fully and said, I got this, this is easy, let me draw you a diagram. You are overseeing, you're jumping over the beauty of the mystery of this thing. The fact that God knows ahead of time. Each and every one of us, how he has made us all wonderfully made in the womb. And yet, he's made this choice for you and for me. And at the same time, he's allowing us to make the choice. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the complexity of the thing. And when we want to oversimplify it, we do not really get the gravity of the beauty of what's being done. In the same way when we say that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. If we oversimplify a statement like that and say he was 50% God on Monday and he's 50% God on Monday as well. That is not what is being communicated when Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to this earth to live in human skin He was not God half of the time and man half of the time. He was 100% God, 100% man, and we 100% don't understand it. (laughs) How can a loving God who says, bring all the children to me, be the just God who unleashes his wrath on his only begotten son? In our finite minds, In our human state, we cannot rationalize this. And the Apostle Paul is trying to bring that to light for us today. Trying to remind us that Israel, although rejected for their sin and their disobedience and their obstinance, all of those things are accurate, and yet they're not totally rejected. His promise is for a remnant. His promise is for His people. Israel is not totally rejected, so let's keep, keep moving forward. Israel is not beyond hope, so we keep moving forward. Verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble as though to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be the full inclusion will it bring? I'm talking to you, Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, the Israelites, to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered is the first fruit is holy, then the whole batch is holy. It's one illustration he gives and the other one. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. The beginning of verse 11 it says, Did they stumble as though to fall beyond recovery? Are they beyond hope? Have they gone too far that this time they cannot re- respond and recover from it? I've had the privilege of being... Uh, in ministry with those who are in recovery over a number of years. And it, it definitely feels like at times that there are people who have just seemed like you've, you've gone too far. Your mistakes are too big. You're, you're incarcerated now and it seems like there's no way that, that God is going to use this or could use this. It just seems like you're too far gone. When Apostle Paul here is talking to the Jews and then he brings the Gentiles in, he says, it's actually because of your damaged goods that God is being shown through this. And as a worship leader, as a guy who got to stand in front and lead worship and play the guitar or the piano or these instruments with a group of people, a worship gathering of people who are all in the middle of their recovery, and, and some of them are on day number one of their recovery, you should hear them sing and lift their voices to him and glorify the greatness and the glory of God because they understand that they are not too far gone. And friends, do you understand? Gentiles, it says, listen up, that's you, that's me. Listen up. You're not too far gone, you're not too far gone. Because if the root is holy, then so are the branches. You see there will be one day, it's illustrated here, there's going to be this mass homecoming. It's a good time at college, end of the college year or sometimes we see it with the graduation of high school students, we see the influx of friends and family who come and they visit and it's, there's this homecoming. It's just a special time when everyone just kind of comes home, visits one another. We're a church where people seem to come home here for Christmas and you get to see other people you haven't seen in a while. You understand what the, the glory of God will be demonstrated with this great homecoming one day in glory when we all come together and celebrate Him. And He is saying here that this, this worldwide coming together, this recovery of something that has been lost is going to have this beautiful, massive homecoming all to what? The glory of God. Just think about what it's going to look like What's going to happen when all is made right? And so behind all of this is this God-ordained plan, this God-driven planting of the root that then is God-tendered so then the branches that grow out of it. The primary root of the tree is holy. There's bound to be some holy fruit there, he is saying. So Israel's not totally rejected. Israel's not beyond hope. Israel's not been broken forever, is your third fill-in. Israel has not been broken forever, so we keep moving forward. Verse 17, if some branches have been broken off and you, although a wild olive shoe, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to these other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now I have never grafted a tree together. I don't know if any of you have done that. The basic principle is this. If you get flowers from the store and you put them in a, in a water canister, they're sucking water up from, the, from that that's keeping it alive. The same principle is true uh, in France. Uh, grafting has been done there. Plants are most useless until they're grafted into a rootstock that's different from their own. In the middle of the 19th century, there's an infestation that practically destroyed all of the grapevines in France. So France was saved only because the strong roots of California were brought over to make them immune to this phylloxera or whatever the disease was. And so they brought in this other form of these French vines and they grafted them together. So apparently today that there is scarcely a grapevine in France that is not growing off of California roots. Isn't that interesting? Some of you know our story of, of losing a son at a young age of a heart condition. Uh, Dalia had a school project this year that she went back and she did some research on the early heart surgeries, even before they would be able to put someone on like an ECMO machine it's called when you, or a heart bypass machine. They literally would have two cots that they would lay out and there would be one person in one cot that they would cut open their leg and they would open up the femoral nerve, am I saying that right? I don't know if I'm saying that right, or artery, something, whatever. You guys are smarter than I am. They connect the two bodies. And Dalia did this project, she had these two dolls and she's like doing surgery on it and like cutting them and putting tubes and hoses, running them back and forth to each other to demonstrate this. The same type of things happens here when you graft two different uh, uh, fruit plants together is that you're, you're drawing the source from one so that the other stays alive. And in doing so, the other then starts to bud and starts to grow and starts to demonstrate life in here. So what we see here is that God, he, he can pick up the broken pieces of the branches and put them back on. What you also need to see is that you and I have been grafted in. As Gentiles, we have been grafted in. And what God does is he's broken off some branches to make room for you and for me to be grafted into the branch. It says in verse 19, the branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in but they were broken off because of unbelief. And if you stand by faith, but remember this, he says, do not be arrogant, but tremble. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, it says otherwise in scripture. Do not put yourself in a place that says, look at me, that you grafted me in. It was really important for you to graft me in. He says, no, 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 we got to come back to the root structure. The root structure here is God's plan for the people of Israel. And you and I have been grafted in. You see, Israel has been broken, but not forever. Why? Your last filling, because they are not without a future. And neither are you or I. So keep moving forward. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, verse 25. Brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God has created this opportunity so that Gentiles like you and like me have the opportunity to be connected to the root. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. As the band comes forward this morning, the gospel translation or or, or summary says it in this way, because I think it's a beautiful way. He says this, and the beauty of it is this theologian going through and be able to simplify things into words that we can understand. He says, I want to lay this all on the table as clearly as I can, friends. This is a complicated thought. It would be easy to misinterpret what's going on and arrogantly assume that you're royalty and that these other people are just rabble out on their ears for good and no longer of any use. But that's not it at all. This hardness on the part of insider Israel towards God is only temporary. Its effect is to open things up so that all the outsiders like us will end up in this full house. Before it's all over, there will be a complete Israel. As it is written, and this is in your outline, a champion will stride down the mountain of Zion. He'll clean house in Jacob. And this is my commitment to my people, the removal of their sins." First century Jews needed to hear this. They needed to hear that their sins would be removed, that that one day the champion would stride into the room and rescue them from their own sinfulness and their own rejection of the Savior. The first century Jews were the ones who chanted themselves. They were the ones who chanted, crucify Him, crucify Him. May His blood be on us and on our children. They were the ones who said that. But in that as well, they are the ones... He is reminding that for a remnant, the champion would come, and when the champion would come, he would commit to his people, he's saying, I will remove all of their sins. There's a hymn that many of you know, because if we just talk about Israel and we miss the application for you and for me this morning, we miss this, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why? As the series says, this is all my hope, all my peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. This is all that I have to stand on. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, when you look at these fill-ins this morning, maybe you need to be reminded in this context, and in this generation, that you have not been totally rejected. That you are not beyond hope. You are not broken forever, you are not without a future, but it's all because nothing but the blood of Jesus who washes all of our sin away. As the ushers come forward this morning, maybe you need to respond. In a moment we're going to sing a song whose whose main statement of the song is, I got saved. Do you have that moment in your life today where you can say, I have set all things aside, I have no righteousness of my own, I understand that I can stand on nothing other than the blood of Jesus. If you haven't made that profession of faith, if you do not understand fully what that means, would you please write something down on that connection card this morning that you can drop it in the offering plate. Start a discussion. I would love the opportunity to be able to talk to you about how God has provided for those he has chosen, yes. That he, the heavenly father, holds us in the palm of his hand and no one can take him away. I'd love to be able to share that with you this morning. If you have a different group of people who are here today, we are living life feeling like you are broken, feeling like you are forgotten, feeling like you are beyond hope, you need to hear today but there is a future for you. God has a plan for your life. He has not given up, friend. Dear Lord, we love you. We pray that there would be some who would respond today. Lord, we thank you for this offering, this time that we have each week to be able to bring our tithes and offerings before you. Be able to give back to you what is already yours. An understanding, a reminder of who you are and who we are not. Lord, when Job the prophet is is standing before you thinking that he has some footing, saying, God, you're not treating me well enough. You're hurting me. I'm following you and you are beating me up right now. God, your response to him is, who do you think you are? So this morning, Lord, we... We can tend to hold on to our own money, our own finances, our own resources and say, well, this is mine. You can't mess with this. Some need to be reminded this morning, who do you think you are? God, you have given to us and therefore we give it right back to you. Lord, for those who are are beginning in that relationship or, Lord, want to begin that relationship here this morning, Lord, I pray that the gospel would be clear, Lord. As we stated last week, that God's only son provides everlasting life. Lord, I pray that that would communicate well this morning. Lord, that there would be those who would respond. And then as we sing together here in a moment, to be able to lift our voices and just say, this was the day I got saved. Lord, we thank you for your word, the way that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that it had pierced this morning. and We trust you for the rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.